The Life of Christ. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 1. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. And as we just prayed, Father, I thank you that the entrance of your word brings light and it does indeed bring understanding to the simple. So we ask again, Father, for your anointings. Please, Father, help me fill my mouth, Lord. In the name of Jesus, Father, I pray out of the book of Ezra that you will help me to open my mouth and to faithfully amplify and to give the sense of these words so that people do indeed go away rejoicing because they have understanding. I trust you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As I've already just shared by way of introduction before we actually started, this first night tonight, we're going to be just reading a lot of information because uh, realistically, I'd like to get through almost three lessons, as it were, because there are 12 in this. I'm only teaching eight hours on this course. Uh, but again, when we start with the life of Christ, we need to go to the book of John. So I'd like you to turn to John chapter 1, if you would, if you have a Bible. John chapter 1. And we're going to read from there in just a moment. But first, I'm going to read from the notes this quote from Gordon Lindsay. Gordon Lindsay was an, a, a, just an incredible writer and a, a chronicler of the things of God. He was in the 40s. He died in the late 50s. He was the man who chronicled all of the great moves of the, of the Spirit in those years with uh, all the great healing ministries, Jack Coe, A.A. Allen, Oral Roberts, all those type of folks. Uh, he was the founder of Christ for the Nations in Texas. It's still, in my opinion, the finest Bible college in the world because it's got the best of the Word and the best of the Spirit of both. It's an incredible place to go to. And uh, he wrote books um, more than he preached. And uh, this, a lot of this stuff that I drew from, some, from the parables came from three of his books called The Life and Teachings of Christ, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. And if you're really interested in really, really having a finite look at Jesus Christ and his life and uh, all of the parables, all of the miracles, just walking through that entire three and a half years, I would really suggest that you purchase those books at your own leisure sometime. It's just called The Life and the Teachings of Christ by Gordon Lindsay, volumes one, two, and three. They're just smaller books, like uh, you know, about 150 page books, paperback books. But I wanted to just read these first three paragraphs off the outline here, and this is from his uh, one of the very first uh, books there about the life and teachings of Christ. Quote, God became man so that he could save man. Nothing is more obvious than the fact that humanity to survive must have a savior. The wise men of this world, the philosophers, the intellectuals are preoccupied in devising ways and means for man to save himself. But the utter failure of man's best efforts to become his own savior is reflected in today's appalling breakdown and disintegration of the very foundations of society. And again, may I say this was written in the late 1940s or early 1950s. Today we see law and order and even the basic principles of common decency rapidly giving way to lawlessness, anarchy, crime, immorality, perversion, and wickedness of so revolting in nature as to shock the sensibilities of all but the most depraved. This corruption of society proceeds at an ever-accelerating pace, although never before in history have the masses enjoyed such affluence or such educational opportunities. Notwithstanding the proliferation of psychiatrists and psychologists and physicians of the mind, all appear helpless to stem the tide of social disintegration. The number of emotionally disturbed persons in proportion to the population continues to increase at an alarming rate. 
Man has indeed proven beyond all shadow of doubt that he cannot save himself. Vainly, he tries to lift himself to heaven by his bootstraps. Of course, the only answer to the world's ills is Christ. While the finite cannot hope to comprehend fully the infinite, God did not intend the purpose of the Lord's mission to the world to remain a mystery. The beauty of Christ's words is in their simplicity as well as their profoundness. While his salvation may be hid to the wise and the prudent, its great truths are fully open to the devout and the humble. Amen. Very basically, just again to say that I know that you know this already, but you know, the world was definitely in need of a Savior. And we're just going to read all of chapter 1 of John, the first chapter, chapter uh, the Gospel of John from the Amplified Bible, just so that we can set a background from all this. And then we're going to basically, like I said tonight, I'm going to be just reading quite quickly through several of these pages of notes uh, so that we can get to some parts that I'm really wanting to get to here. But now, like I said in the beginning, the entrance of God's Word brings light, so don't take it lightly. Let's just allow the Spirit of God to just speak these familiar words into our spirit. And think about this, and think about the fact that this was a plan from the beginning of all time to redeem mankind. It says, in the beginning, in the beginning before all time was the Word, Christ. The Word was with God, and the Word was God Himself. He was present originally with God. All things were made and came into existence through Him, and without Him was not even one thing made that has come into being. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines on in the darkness, for the darkness has never overpowered it, or put it out, or absorbed it, or appropriated it, and is unreceptive to it. Now there came a man sent from God whose name was John, this man came to witness that he might testify to the light that all men might believe in it, adhere to it, trust it, and rely upon it through him. He was not the light himself, but he came that he might bear witness regarding the light. There it was, the true light was then coming into the world, the genuine, the perfect, the steadfast light that illumines every person. He came into the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him and did not know him. He came to that which belonged to him, to his own, his domain, his creation, things and world, and they who were his own did not receive him and did not welcome him. To me, that's always amazed me, just that when you really think about walking with Christ, I think as I've shared with you in the other courses, one of the things that the Lord really wants us to do is to learn how to do just that as we walk through all these teachings, to, uh, is to train yourself to walk with the Lord and uh, allow yourself to see what he's seeing, smell what he's smelling, uh, when they're walking down these dusty roads and so on, and put yourself in the picture as much as you can. But think about the frustrations. I often think about the opportunity of frustrations for this man. And again, this is where the beginning of our faith starts, just this issue that we have to begin. And, you know, he that cometh to God, Hebrews eleven six. he that cometh to God must believe that he is. I mean, that's the starting point of all things, that he is who he says he is. But to think that the founder, the creator of all things, I love that verse where it says, all things that were made. I mean, think about this. Anything that you can see, all things that were made were, by, were made by him and through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, without him was not anything made that was made. And then, of course, in the third verse, when he likens himself or when it says categorically, and the word was God. Now, all these things tied together are going to become very important to any part of our Christian walk because at some point in our life, we actually have to come to the place where we make the decision that this Word and God, according to Scripture, are the same. 
And don't freak out when I say that. When I first came to this nation many, many years ago, and I was speaking up in the north of, north of England once, talking about the integrity of the Word of God and the strength of God's Word and how God's Word itself can change things just by the constant application of God's Word. And this one fellow afterwards who was a theologian, he accused me of canonizing the Word, and I didn't even really know what he meant, but he said, you're canonizing the Word, Mr. Anderson. He said, you're actually making too much of Scripture. I remember looking at him, and of course he had several degrees, and the only degree I had was about 96.8 because I was <laughs> normal at the moment. But the point is, he, I, I said, I, I don't know what you mean. How can I be guilty of canonizing the Word of God and making it more than it is when God's Word says, and the Word was God? He said, well, but he said, you're trying to make too much of it, and you're trying to make people feel too strongly about just the Scriptures by themselves. And I felt very grieved in my heart for the guy because I knew that he was very ill and he was going through a lot of changes and what have you. But uh, there are, people will fight this. All I know is this, the, the sooner we come to a real reverence for this, a real reverence for this word, I mean, where we respect this book and we respect the words of this book as much as we respect anything about life, the sooner this book begins to change us. As I used to say years ago, as long as this is just a book to you, or even if it's a holy book to you, it, it, it will never change your life. It's only when this becomes God speaking to you. Did you hear me? It's only when this becomes God speaking to you that, it will, that it's going to cause any change. Otherwise, the Bible will be a hobby. The Bible will be something that you uh, do when it's convenient, but it won't be life to you. But the Scripture says in Proverbs 4 and other places, it said that, you know, my son attended my word because it's life and it's health and it's healing to all their flesh. Don't let this word depart from before your eyes. All through Scripture, God spoke to this. We know that Joshua 1.8, in the beginning, back there when Mo Joshua was taken over after Moses, he make, the Lord tells him that very familiar Scripture, I'm sure that you all know, but he, he says to Joshua, to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth but you shall meditate therein day and night, so that thou mayest observe to do. So that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For only then, he said, will you deal wisely and have good success in life. But everywhere through Scripture, you'll see how God, even back in the Old Covenant, how much He put such emphasis on, on us surrounding ourselves with His Word. Deuteronomy 6, when He spoke to His people back there, He said, in, uh, he said to them, he said, when you need to talk of this word. He said, you will talk of this word when you wake up. He said, you are to talk of the word when you sit down. He said, you'll talk of this word when you go to sleep. He said, you're to talk of this word when you go to work. He said, you're to put it upon the, uh, the doorposts of your house. And he said, upon the lentils of your house. He said, you're supposed to put it on your arm and put it upon, you know, wear it upon your head as a phylactery. But I mean, if you can see the picture, what God was trying to communicate is he said, I want you to literally be surrounded by these commandments. I want your lives to be surrounded by these commandments. In other words, this constant remembrance of, of, of where life came from. In the beginning, God. And in the beginning, God. But God is the Word. God created all things by His Word. And of course, Jesus is the personification. Jesus is the Word that came and was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. So I'm just saying as we walk through this, one of the first things I had to learn is just how to really reverence the Scriptures for what they really were. And as I think as I prayed just earlier, that it is indeed the Word of God and not the Word of a man. Uh, otherwise, like I said, we're just going to study it like you'll study a driver's manual. And if you study it like you study a driver's manual, there'll be nothing, there'll be no life coming from it whatsoever. 
John said here in verse 10, again, verse 11, he said, he came to that which belonged to him, to his own, his own domain. He said, and they who were his own did not receive him and did not welcome him. But to as many as did receive and welcome him, he gave the authority and the power and the privilege and the right to become the children of God. That is to those who believe in, adhere to, and rely on his name, who owe their birth neither to bloods nor to the will of the flesh, nor to the will of man, that of a natural father, but to God, they are born of God. In verse 14, and the word Christ became flesh, human, incarnate, and tabernacled, and fixed his tent of flesh, and lived a while among us. And we actually saw his glory, his honor, his majesty, such glory as an only begotten son receives from his father, full of grace and favor, loving kindness and truth. John testified about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has priority over me, for he was before me. He takes rank above me, for he existed before I did. He is advanced before me because he is my chief. For out of his, for out of his fullness, his abundance, it says, we have all received, we've all had a share, and we were all supplied with one grace after another, and spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing, and even favor upon favor, and gift heaped upon gift. I want to make just one comment about that. Now, the students that have been here all along know that the very first course we taught was on the grace of God or which side of Calvary. If you can, if you can just let me read that scripture again, I want you to hear it because it says, out of his fullness have we all received. Now, Again, I'm imagining, I'm trusting that everybody in here is, like we said, is, is, born again, born of, is born again. But listen to what he said. He says, for out of his fullness have we all received and we've all had a share. And he said, we were all supplied with one grace after another. And then it says, one spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing. Then it says, favor upon favor. Then it says, gift heaped upon gift. In the Greek, this these words here speak of cyclical motion. And what it spoke to is the fact that this John is trying to testify and trying to communicate what it was like to have been around this man named Jesus, this man from Nazareth. And the way the Greek says it is that everywhere we went, he said, every time we were around him, consistently around him, everywhere we looked, it says everywhere we looked, there was just spiritual favor upon spiritual favor, gift heaped upon gift, grace upon grace, Blessing upon blessing. In other words, everywhere we looked when we were with this man, we were surrounded by these blessings, by these gifts, by this grace, by this incredible fullness of, of him. And he said, of this fullness that we all received. And this is why, again, it's important to understand this because I don't want to go all the way back and teach the grace thing. But he says in verse 17, for while the law was given through Moses, he said, grace, undeserved, unearned favor and spiritual blessing and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, again, all through Scripture, you'll see in the Old Testament is all through the law. The New Testament is all from the grace of God's angle. In other words, it, it says in the King James that grace and truth, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And grace was always going to precede truth now in this dispensation of Christ. But let me just keep reading here. No man has ever seen God at any time, the only unique Son or the only begotten God who is in the bosom in the intimate presence of the Father. He has declared Him. He has revealed Him and brought Him out where He can be seen. He has interpreted Him and He has made Him known. 
And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites to him from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and admitted the truth and did not try to concede it, but acknowledged, he said, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then are you, Elijah? And John answered and said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? Tell us so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying aloud in the wilderness, the voice of one shouting in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Level and straighten out the path of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. The messengers had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I only baptize in and with water. Among you there stands one now whom you do not recognize and with whom you're not acquainted and of whom you know nothing. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, the string of whose sandal I am not worthy to unloose. These things occurred in Bethany across the Jordan at the Jordan crossing where John was then baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who has priority over me, who takes rank above me, because he was before me and existed before I did. And I did not know him and did not recognize him myself, but it is in order that he should be made manifest and be revealed to Israel, be brought out where we can see him, that I came baptizing in and with water. Well, it goes on, but let's just get to the notes here. I just want us to get to this and start cranking up here if we can here. But again, if you'll just, like I said, bear me a little patience here while we go through all this this bit here. See, I'm wanting to get to the parables and I'm wanting to get to a lot of really good chunky stuff here, but I need to go through this, otherwise I'll be messing some things up here. Very number one here on the page three, again, I'm not sure if those of you just have notes for tonight and how it says, but it says, Jesus declared himself to be the Son of God. And again, these are these are just important things that we have to just go through. John 10, 36. It said, Say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. In other words, he openly declared this to people that he spoke to. There are some who say that Jesus was a good man, but not divine. Yet if Jesus lied when he said he was the Son of God, he was not actually a good man, but either a usurper or a man greatly deluded. Notice what Jesus claimed. He said that he lived before Abraham, the father of the Hebrew and the Arab nations. In John 8, 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. His pre-existence, all through Scripture, there's all manner of verses that speak to his pre-existence. He was in heaven with God before he came into the world. His pre-existence is a matter of Bible record. We have several verses here, John 6, 62. What, and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 7, 3, where it speaks about him operating as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It says, Without father, without mother, having, or without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, where he abideth the priest continually. Micah 5, 2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And of course, we just read John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 17, 5, and he said, this is the Lord, actually the Lord's prayer. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. 
In a four-year Bible college, they'd take you all through these and dissect these consistently because they have to prove the preexistence of Christ. And like I said, so we're just giving you just a ballpark look here. The birth and the childhood of Jesus. Let's go ahead and just turn to Matthew 1. Again, if you've got a Bible, let's read that rendition. It's not Christmas time, but we need to <laughs> read any higher. Matthew chapter 1. Just read that version. Praise God. Hallelujah. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place under these circumstances. When his mother Mary had been promised in marriage to Joseph, because they came, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And her promised husband Joseph, being a just and upright man, and not willing to expose her publicly and to shame and disgrace her, decided to repudiate and dismiss or divorce her quietly and secretly. But as he was thinking this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, descendant of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from and out of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua, which means Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. That is, prevent, prevent them from failing and missing. I love this verse in the Amplified. He will save them from their sins. That is, prevent them from failing and missing the true end and scope of life, which is God. Hallelujah. All this took place that it might be fulfilled, which the Lord had spoken to the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which when translated means God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took her to his side as his wife, but he had no union with her as her husband until she had borne her firstborn son, and he did indeed call his name Jesus. Now, I want to just make one more comment before we go further about, again, the integrity of the Word of God here. And we share this in some of the other courses too, but the basic principle of how Christ came into this earth and became flesh is one that is a pattern for everything else that God does in our lives as individuals. Uh, most of you have heard me make this comment often. Again, everything God does, He does how? Everything God does, He does according to a pattern and based upon a principle. All through Scripture, I don't care what it is, whether it be marriage, whether it be business, whether it be parenting, everything God does, He does according to a pattern and based upon a principle. And it's like, again, little things that we've noticed. Remember we spoke about the law of first mention, like the very first words ever spoken by Lucifer were, hath God said, back in Genesis 2. That's the first, that's the underlying root of all deception is the fact that Lucifer will challenge our knowledge of what God hath said. In a four-year or six-year Bible college, they call it the law first mention. In other words, this, the strain of that truth will run throughout all Scripture, the bottom line root, root, uh, root, lowest root denominator of something. But here, I want you to think about it again, that God spoke, an angel spoke to Mary. Gabriel came with a message from heaven and said, Mary, you shall be with child. And Mary had the opportunity either reject that or receive it. But again, we know that she said, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. But if you can just capture this before we go any further again, what Mary did was she heard a message, didn't she? She simply heard a word that came from heaven and she received that word from heaven 
into the womb of her spirit. And nine months later, that word, that message, took upon itself flesh and manifested itself in the person of a man named Jesus Christ that we now call Lord. Now, if you can, if, if somehow we, I mean, I have to practice this still all, every day of my life sometimes to really continually understand. This is why I, I read this book incessantly because the entrance of God's word brings light. But because Jesus said, my words are seed, he said, my words are spirit. But it always amazed me when I thought about the fact that you can actually from that begin to understand how the virgin birth took place because God's Word has within itself the power to bring itself to pass again. All seed, all seed, remember, has the power within itself to bring itself to pass again. Mary received a message from heaven. This is hopefully what some of us are going to do on this earth while we're here for however many years we live. If we will but receive into our own spirit these words that come from heaven, we can hope to become literally impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And again, if we will watch over that seed and not allow that seed to be aborted, we, along with Mary and all the other thousands and hundreds of thousands of people through the centuries, can have the same hope that they had to bring forth from that faith, bring forth from that first planting, whatever that seed represents. Rice seed brings forth rice, corn brings forth corn. But again, all of these are important things. Right from the beginning, even his birth, the way his birth took place is a pattern and a principle for all of our life. It's one of these root level areas that you have to get. You have to get first things first, otherwise everything else will be tainted, like it says in Galatians, just a little leaven leavens the whole lump, or as it says in the Amplified Bible, just a slight inclination to error, just a slight inclination to error, or, uh, or a few false teachers can mislead the entire church and distort the entire conception of faith, can distort the entire conception of faith, just a little leaven, just a little inclination to error. So again, this is why we go through the basics, because we have to get this stuff down from the beginning. His birth was announced. His birth, of course, takes place here in, in Luke chapter 2. We won't read that. Um, point four, you can read this. I'd like for you to read these yourselves later, those of you that are going to continue in the course. He was, he's dedicated at the temple, of course. Uh, point number five, the visit of the wise men. You can see that in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 23. Then Matthew 6, uh, or not point number six, Jesus visits the temple as a child. Let's turn there and read Luke 2 for just a moment because of uh, something I'll say after this in a bit. I want you to see this because I want you to consider something about Lord growing up. Luke chapter 2. And we'll start here at verse 40. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. In fact, we'll just read the rest of the chapter from 40 onward. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, the grace and the favor and the spiritual blessing of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year to the Passover feast. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as was their custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus remained behind in Jerusalem. Now his parents did not know this. But supposing him to be in the caravan, they traveled on a day's journey. And then they sought him diligently, looking up and down for him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. And when they failed to find him, they went back to Jerusalem, looking for him up and down all the way. After three days, they found him. They came upon him in the court of the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished 
Now he's 12 years old here. It says, and all who heard him were astonished and overwhelmed with bewildered wonder at his intelligence and understanding in his replies. And when they, Joseph and Mary, saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Here your father and I have been anxiously looking for you, distressed and tormented. And he said to them, How is it that you had to look for me? Did you not see and know that it is necessary as a duty for me to be in my father's house and occupied about my father's business? But they did not comprehend what he was saying to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was habitually obedient to them. And this is where it infers, like up here in point seven, that he worked in the carpenter shop of his father because, of course, in the Judeo ethic, he would have, that's exactly what he would have had to do, as it were, is to follow, follow in his father's footsteps. But verse 51 says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was habitually obedient to them. And his mother kept and closely and persistently guarded all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, in broad and full understanding, and in stature and years, and in favor with God and man. Now, you know, this is the only statement we have in Scripture about his life between birth and between the inauguration of his ministry. That's the only, this is the only statement there is. Twelve years old, we have this comment, and nothing else until he's 30 years old. But even at 12 years old, of course, we read this, that something was working in him that caused him to know, again, of course, his father was devout, his mother was devout, and he knew that father's house was where he belonged. Um, but anyhow, just hold that thought while we get to something else here in a moment. Now, his ministry, again, the inauguration, he's baptized by John in Matthew 3. Actually, let's turn to just Mark. That'll be the shortest version if I can read it from Mark here for a moment. Matthew, Mark, as if you didn't know that. Mark 1, verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, at once he, John, saw the heavens torn open and the Holy Spirit like a dove coming down to enter into him. And there came a voice out from within heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And then it says, Immediately the Holy Spirit from within drove him out into the wilderness. Now, I want you to see this little simple statement underneath the scripture on page 5 there, where again we have it written down, or Matthew, I've got Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. But another interesting point that you have to see that's a seed, it's a pattern in the beginning of all things. Jesus' ministry only begins after the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I mean, again, I want, you, you need to meditate about that on your own time, but I want you to think about this. The man's ministry doesn't begin, and this is the heart of God for his son, but again, it's a pattern. It's the heart of God for all of us. The man's ministry does not begin until after he's baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's no record of any miracles. Back there in Luke, like I said, it spoke of the wisdom of this young man at 12 years old, but there's no miracles. There was nothing to set him apart. This is what we're going to get to in a moment. And then I want you to turn to Luke 4 and read about this temptation of his. When he, so he gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. The very first thing, the very, very first thing that he's led of the Spirit to do is to go and to pray. And he goes into this prophet's fast, this 40-day fast. The, very, the way he begins his entire ministry is through fasting and prayer and by being led by God's Spirit. Now here in Luke 
4, verse 1. Then Jesus, full of and controlled by the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led in by the Holy Spirit for during 40 days in the wilderness, for during 40 days in the wilderness desert where he was tempted, where he was tried and tested exceedingly by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were completed, he was hungry. I guess so. Then the devil said to him, and here's where we see the three major categories of all temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's exactly what he was tempted with, and it's what all mankind is tempted with, the three major areas of confrontation are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The first one is, of course, the lust of the flesh, and it says, if you are the Son of God, order this stone to turn into a loaf of bread. Of course, Jesus replies to him and says, it is written, man shall not live and be sustained on bread alone, but by every word and expression of God. Then the devil took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the habitable world in, the moment, in a moment of time in the twinkling of an eye. And he said to him, to you I will give all this power and authority. That's the pride of life. To you I will give all this power and authority and their glory, all their magnificence, their excellence, their preeminence, their dignity and grace. For it has been turned over to me. Therefore, if you will do homage to and worship me just once, it shall all be yours. And Jesus replied to him, Get behind me, Satan. It is written, You shall do homage to and worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a gable of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down from here, for it is written. This is what always struck me all those years ago. Satan quotes Scripture. See, the final strongest temptation that comes to all men is when Satan himself, as it were, distorts truth, blindsides God's people by taking God's Word out of context and trying to make application of it in your life. This is why, you know, I, people get so bored with me saying it probably, but there's just no shortcut about the necessity of meditating in this Word because the only antidote to a lie is the truth. And if you don't know the truth, how are you going to recognize a lie? It's just that simple. And again, this basic pattern of Jesus, and he is our pattern. Ephesians 5, 1 says, Be ye therefore imitators of God, and copy him as well-beloved children. Be ye therefore imitators of God, and copy him as well-beloved children. The Greek word is mimetes, where we get the word mimic. We are told to copy him. And, to think about, and when you really think about it, I mean, the three major categories of temptation, tests, and trials that he... he where he's exceedingly tried. And I know you know it, but see, you have to rehearse it all. How does Jesus Christ himself defeat the temptations and the tests and the trials? By saying, it is written. It is written. It came out of his mouth. And I'm trying to say, it's got to come out of your mouth. Uh, I'm telling you, at some point, you see, this word, he is the word. The word, can you see, this is corn. I'm not trying to be clever here. The word is, the word's coming out of the word here. <laughs> He was the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And He is, the Word has been made flesh. In flesh is right here. But this flesh Word to defeat a spiritual issue has to come with the Spirit of the Word, which is God's Word. <laughs> oh, well, never mind. Uh, I think I confused myself that time. But listen, verse 9, Then he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a gable of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... 
And in other words, he questions your, his identity. And man, I'm telling you, this, I wish that's a whole nother course, but you, again, those of you that have been here uh, for all the other courses know how much I harp on this, that you must not derive your personal identity from anything that anybody else puts on you. You discover who you are in scripture. Jesus Christ actually discovered who he was in scripture. But he said, if you are the son of God, cast yourself down from here for it is written, Satan quotes the Bible, for it is written, he will give his angels charge over you to guard and to watch over you closely and carefully. He pulls it out of context. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus replied to him, it is written, you shall not tempt. It is written, you shall not tempt or test or try, excuse me, you shall not tempt or try or test exceedingly the Lord your God. Now here's something that struck me years ago too. Verse 13 says, and when the devil had ended, listen to this. This is a really good rendition from the Greek. And when the devil had ended every, the complete cycle of temptation, you have to understand this. He will come. He's a good, like my spiritual dad told me years ago, Satan's a fisherman. He's going to keep throwing bait out to see what you bite on. But most of us, like I said, he doesn't have to fish too long because we've been biting on the same bait for so long. <laughs> Why should he have to change bait? But it says, when the devil had ended every, the complete cycle of temptation. Now listen to this part. He, Satan, temporarily, he temporarily left Jesus that is stood off from him until another more opportune and favorable time. And why that's important is even with the master himself, I want you to hear the fact that when he is confronted by Satan himself and he resists him and his resistance is fine and Satan leaves him, but it says even with the master, he's going to leave him for a more opportune and favorable time. In other words, he's going to come back. He's going to try him again. Well, you do understand that He's going to come back to you. Oh, well. He does come back. You see, we're in this world. We're not of the world, but we're in this world. We must have the sword which the Spirit wields, which is the Word of God. Nobody's impervious to temptation. Nobody is. The moment you think you aren't, that's when it says, like, take heed lest when you think you stand, you fall. You know, my wife used to get upset with me because I, I would be too candid about things. And when people would ask me, well, do you ever get tempted to stuff? And I'd say, sure. And uh, she'd go, Ron, you should never say that. That's horrible to say that you actually get tempted to things like that. And I said, well, I do. <laughs> I said, I would rather be aware of my weaknesses and be aware of my frailties and know who I am than stand up and start shouting to everybody that I never get tempted by anything, only to prepare myself for a fall. What I'm trying to say is I know that it's in his strength that I stand. I don't have any faith in my own strength. I've got faith in God who lives in me and his strength in me. But all I know is there's something, there's a little key to that that we'll get to in another time, but that makes all the difference in the world between your authority and his authority working in you. Okay. So I hear that though. When the devil had ended every, the complete cycle of temptation, he temporarily left Jesus. He just temporarily left Jesus. That has stood off from him until another more opportune and favorable time. And it says, then Jesus went back full of and under the power of the Holy Spirit into Galilee, and the fame of him began to spread throughout the whole region round about. And he set off into a teaching course. And the next verse, and he himself conducted a course of teaching in their synagogues. That probably would have been a lot better attended than this one. <laughs> being recognized and honored and praised by all. Back to the outline here. Point two, Jesus returns to Galilee. And the very first miracle we read, of course, is where he performs the miracle of uh, turning the water into wine. 
in Galilee, excuse me, in, in Cana itself. Then he visits Capernaum. God has given the Son power to give men eternal life with God. Just before Christ was put upon a cross to die, he was praying, John 17, 1 and 2, and he said, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. But now if you turn the page where it says his rise from obscurity. This is a part that just interests me. Um, let me just read. There's nothing in all history or in the processes of nature to account for this man, Jesus, who emerged out of total obscurity, this one who is incomparably the most perfect figure of all time, one so immeasurably superior to all other humans that no comparison is possible. During the nearly 30 years Jesus was growing up in Nazareth in Israel, there was no striking evidence that an, that an extraordinary person was living there. Now, I, I want you to think about this. Like we said, at 12 years old, we have a mention of him. But he's in Nazareth. He's, he's going through this thing, working as a carpenter. But think about this. Nobody seemed to see anything about him that made him special at all, if you see what I'm trying to say, other than the fact that his parents saw this great wisdom that he had and the teachers in that synagogue, we, that's the only state we have, they marveled at the fact that this man had so much, this young man had, was asking such incredible questions. But let me just read. It says, during the nearly 30 years Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, Israel, there was no striking evidence that an extraordinary person was living there. The remarks of the people who lived in that village and knew him revealed their amazement at the power that began to be displayed in his ministry in the following words. Mark 6, verses 2 and 3, And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From, from whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and of Judah, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. In other words, although his brothers and sisters had lived in the same house with Jesus a good part of 30 years, they seemingly had seen nothing unusually remarkable about him. To them and their neighbors, he was probably above average, but that was all. Jesus occupied a position as a humble carpenter of the village that attracted little notice. His customers were acquaintances and peasants from neighboring areas. He earned a small wage enough to supply the simple needs of the family, nothing more. And yet, in three years' time, in three years' time, the impact of his ministry made him the hope of this life and the life to come for millions of men who have accepted him into their lives. His words were carefully collected and written down to be treasured as the words of more than a man. Though hated by his enemies, he so captivated the hearts of multitudes down through the centuries that many have considered it a supreme honor to die for him. Again, I'm just saying, I just, it's, it strikes me so much. I, I guess what I'm trying to communicate with this is that I want you to see the humanity of Christ uh, because you must see the humanity of Christ to understand how powerful it was for him to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and become the Son of God. Uh, I don't mean to keep saying this over and over again, but some of my past students have heard me say this. When you study the Bible, when you study this thing in a four-year Bible college, they'll teach you about something called, it's a Greek word called hypostasis, which means the, the underpinning, the structure, the foundation of truth. And that's where they teach you, and you begin, you go through every scripture in the Word where it communicates this.
let me just throw it out again. Have you ever noticed how often in Scripture you'll find references to the, His name as Jesus Christ, but then in other places in the four Gospels He's referred to as Christ Jesus? Have you seen where it says Son of Man, then it says Son of God? Have you ever wondered why? I mean, why is He sometimes called the Son of Man, Son of God, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus? This hypostasis speaks of the two divine, or of, of the two coming together. It speaks of his 100% humanity and his 100% divinity. Very basically, to jump to the chase, every single time you see the word Jesus before Christ, it speaks of his humanity. Every single time you see Christ before Jesus, it speaks of his deity. Every time you see the phrase Son of God, it speaks of his deity. Every time you see the phrase Son of Man, it speaks to his humanity. Now in Philippians it says that he had stripped himself of his Godhead powers. He had stripped himself totally of his Godhead powers. And why that's important is again, listen, he was tempted, the Bible says, remember, he was tempted in all ways, like as we were, yet without sin. Is that correct? Well, would it be a temptation for God in his deity to be tempted? You see what I'm trying to say? It's not a big deal. <laughs> I succeeded. I wasn't tempted. Well, it's not a big deal for God to not be tempted. But this is the key. You have to let him be a man. He was 100% God. He was 100% man. But in his deity, he had the ability to lay the deity down. This is the great mystery of godliness that Paul talks about in First and Second Timothy. He laid his deity aside. He stripped himself of his Godhead powers, and he became flesh and blood. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 speaks to that as well. It says, therefore, since his children were partakers of flesh and blood, it says that he partook of flesh and blood, that he by going through death might deliver them who through all their lifetime had been held in bondage through the haunting fear of death. He partook of flesh and blood, but he was a man. He came into this world, I mean, you know, it's like as a baby, you have to picture Mary, I mean, he had to have his diapers changed, okay? <laughs> I don't know what kind of diapers they had in those days, but I'm just saying, you've got to understand, he went through similar things of growth like we all did, but yet there was something in his spirit that made him different. But yet nothing was seen that was unusual about him, like I said, when he was coming up. This is this thing. But it's amazing because, again, when you study it and you see the Son of Man, Son of God, again, in the, when I, in, in the actual Bible school that I led, and some of the students always got very, they looked at me really strange when I shared with them, like when we were teaching on healing, that you can't find one scripture that, that well, well, I told him that the Son of God never performed one miracle. The Son of God never healed one person. Christ Jesus never healed one person. And they kind of look at you all funny. And it's because the Son of God never did. Every miracle was performed by the Son of Man. Hallelujah. Everything that took place took place as Jesus Christ, not as Christ Jesus, as far as what he did. Now, why that's so important is because he was a man. He was a man in his humanity, but anointed of the Holy Spirit but the same Holy Spirit that you and I get to be filled with. That's where you're supposed to really say hallelujah. <laughs> That's why he says later that the same, the works that I do, he said, you are going to be able to do also. But you see, this is why we have to go through a lot of basic little stuff here because otherwise, most of the body of Christ still lives in this framework that that was Jesus and nobody else can do what Jesus did. But you, it, the more you begin to see that he as a man did these things, the stronger your faith will become. Because if all you see him as God in the flesh doing these things, you'll always have a little reticence. There'll be that something that where you pull back in your spirit because after all, well, if Jesus was here, he could do anything. Well, even that's not the truth, is it? 
Because we know in Mark 5 and Matthew 13, it says that in his own hometown, he could do no mighty works there because of other people's unbelief. Because of just this, the familiarity with him as a man didn't allow them to, to be familiar with the power of the Spirit that was upon him. Anyhow, these things get, they may sound like a bunch of jumbled stuff at this point in time, but it becomes crucial later on down the road to really understand the difference between his humanity and his deity, okay? Well, I'll tell you what, let's just stop here for this one then so I can start this in the second, in the second hour then. So Father, we do. We just thank you for this much. We thank you for the great grace of heaven. And again, we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you're so patient with us and that you by your spirit are going to guide us into more and more truth about yourself because we need to know you. In Jesus' name, I ask this. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.